Hi, this is 112BK with Mackenzie Fagan, and I'm Mackenzie Fagan, coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, Lori Gottlieb, dear therapist columnist for The Atlantic, is making an East Coast swing to promote her new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. She stopped by 112BK to discuss what happens when therapists need therapists. People want us to be human, but they don't necessarily want to see our humanity. And I think that it's important for people to know that our humanity is our greatest tool. Um, Without it, we would be useless to help people. And then, like other marginalized populations, people with disabilities are underrepresented in mainstream media. The Real Abilities Film Festival aims to change that. When we do see, actually, um, uh, depictions of people with disabilities on the screen, often they're either villainized or extremes or just not really representing kind of the huge spectrum that exists as far as the community. Once, I was looking for a therapist, and I googled a woman whose office was nearby and who was covered by my insurance. I thought I'd do a bit of research and see what else I could learn about her, any website or reviews, articles. And I found her personal Twitter account, which consisted exclusively of tweets to Jimmy Fallon, a one-sided and plaintive conversation with America's third favorite late-night host. All this is to say, sometimes therapists need therapists. Our next guest has written a new book about just that. Lori Gottlieb authors the Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic and has a private practice in L.A. And her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is out this week. Here's our conversation with her. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lori. Um, You have a new book out, and it starts when you yourself go to therapy. Uh, You're a therapist, but you decide to go into therapy because you are going through a breakup and you want to talk it through with someone. Tell us a little bit about what ended you up in Wendell's therapist chair. Right. So I was experiencing what I would call a crisis, um, which was that a very unexpected breakup happened with somebody that I thought I was going to marry. And I thought I would go to see a therapist for what I would call crisis management, which is, you know, a few sessions to kind of get through the shock of it all and then move on. And what ended up happening was, you know, the breakup became a very small part of our therapy and it ended up being, um, you know, an exploration of something much deeper. One of the charming things about the book and indeed sort of its structure is that you yourself as a patient make some of the same mistakes that you see therapists making as they come into your office. So you talk about patients who email you and they're like, I just need to come in for, you know, a six sessions so I can decide whether or not to marry this woman before Valentine's Day. And about how you as a therapist um, sometimes decline to work with that type of mindset. How did your therapist react when you said, I just need to come in for crisis management. This is just an incident that I need to get through and then I'm going to be fine. Well, Maybe because I'm a therapist, um, he moved pretty quickly in that first session. But of course, I thought he was smoking something because he said, you know, you're not just grieving the breakup. I think you're grieving something bigger. And of course, my reaction was, seriously, I'm coming in here to talk about this and this is your professional advice, Um, which is funny because, of course, as a therapist, I know better. How long do you think that you should give a new therapist um, if you aren't connecting in that way. You mentioned this first session, you 
questioned him a little bit and, and how much he was pushing you. Mm-hmm. How many sessions do you think that somebody should stick with it in order to decide if they gel with their therapist? That's such a great question because the research shows that the most important factor in the success of your therapy isn't the therapist training or their experience or what modality they use. All of those are important, of course, but it's the relationship you have with the therapist. And so it, a first session is like a consultation and you want to see at the end of that session, did I feel understood? And if you didn't, that's something to think about. But hopefully, just as a basis for going back, did you feel understood? I want to talk a little bit about how you find this person who you think is going to understand you. Um, Because this is something that my friends and I talk about a lot, about how tricky it can be to find a therapist. And on the one hand, like I know that I in the past have sought out a therapist who is Asian because I felt like they could understand some of the cultural nuances that I was going through with my family. Or I have friends who only want to see um, an LGBT therapist or somebody who is gender nonconforming. But then on the flip side, I always wonder, like, is it something, are there certain deeper experiences, human experiences that anyone should be able to to address regardless of how they identify personally. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are certain cultural sensitivities that people need to have. Um, But I also think that, you know, at our core, we all want the same things. We want to love and be loved. We want to feel accepted. We want to relate better to ourselves and the people around us. And yes, there are nuances that we might need to understand, but people can explain those to us too. So you don't have to go to a therapist who has the exact same cultural background or sexual orientation. It can be helpful, but I would say you really just want to go to somebody who's going to get you. And what about age and gender? You mentioned how you yourself wanted to see a male therapist. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that can be tricky. I imagine that maybe a lot of men want to see a a male therapist or or some women as well, but there are so many more women who enter therapy than men, um, or as therapists rather. Uh, And also age. You talk a little bit about how many um, senior citizens don't seek therapy because the trainees who often offer um, sliding scale therapy sessions happen to be in their 20s and 30s and maybe people in their 70s don't feel comfortable with that type of relationship. Yeah, I do think with age that does make a difference. I think I remember when I was starting out, I I became a therapist in midlife, so I had more life experience, but there were a lot of really smart trainees, but they just hadn't lived enough life yet. And so they were very good at what they did. But I think if you're somebody who has lived a lot of life that, um, you know, it would be hard to go see somebody like that. You probably want to go see somebody who's, you know, been through more of what you might have been through in the in the many decades ahead that you've had. And what about gender? Why did you want to see a man specifically? Well, (laughs) I wanted to see a man because I wanted um, somebody who was just like the boyfriend who had broken up with me, um, meaning um, I wanted validation. I wanted him to say, yes, you dodged a bullet. You know, this is uh, this is this is all on him. And it wasn't, of course. But I wanted a married man about his age because my boyfriend was a divorced man about his age, to kind of validate my opinion. And I felt that if I went to a woman, and this is not very fair, but I felt that if I went to a woman, she would say, oh, yeah, your boyfriend's terrible. And then a man would see it maybe more objectively from the male point of view. But of course, I know that that's not true. I know in retrospect that if I had gone to a woman, she would have seen it as clearly as this therapist did. 
And you wanted objectivity, but you also wanted him to end up agreeing with you. Yeah, I wanted objectivity because I was sure that objectivity would rule in my favor. Right, right. And so you talk about this desire for validation that a lot of people come into therapy with. I feel like the flip side is that we all know somebody who are like, oh, that person should be in therapy. So that like a therapist can speak hard truths to them or say things that like maybe we as a friend can't. But that also isn't like quite a therapist's role either to like, you know... uh, I don't know, really to like give it to someone straight. What do you see? How how do you walk that balance between um, validating someone and really like, you know, giving them the cold, hard truth that they need to hear? Yeah. So validating is, is different from agreeing with them. So I can help understand your low opinion of your partner, but I don't have to agree with it. Mm. Um, and I think what we do is we hold up a mirror to people. So we're holding up the mirror to help them see a clear reflection of themselves so they can see their blind spots and they can see the ways that they're shooting themselves in the foot but keep ending up in the same place over and over. And we do that with compassion, but, you know, it's a compassionate truth bomb. It's it's very much your friends aren't going to tell you this, but, you know, you need to see here's something you're doing in the room with me, and I just want to point that out because you might also be doing it in the in the outside world. You talk about compassion in particular with one of your own clients who is a challenging individual when he enters therapy and you sort of repeat this mantra yourself, have compassion, have compassion. Um, What can we take away from that if we are interacting with difficult people in our own lives? Um, If we're not therapists, maybe coworkers or friends or whatnot. Yeah. So I think that you have to understand that people are acting in an abrasive way or a difficult way because they're protecting themselves. That's the way that they cope. And yes, it's it's sometimes it's hard not to take it personally when they're interacting with you, but you have to remember that really it's not so much about you and that there's something vulnerable beneath it that um, you would probably really like about this person if they ever let you see the truth of who they were. This person in particular also has um, an unhealthy relationship with his phone. Uh, he keeps on checking his phone in therapy, and at a certain point you have to ask him to make this a phone-free space. Uh, and you also talk a little bit about how you see, um, especially with young people, smartphones being uh, detrimental. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you think that phones are impacting our society? Yeah, I think that phones make it hard for us to sit in in silence or to hear our own thoughts. So I think what happens is that, you know, any time there's a, a moment of a break between something in an elevator, on a line, people whip out their phones. And even the relationships that people have. So a lot of the younger people who come to me, they'll say, and then he said, and then she said with their thumbs. And I'll say, you had that conversation on text? Um, you know, these are really important conversations, but they don't know how to have them face to face. And then one of my clients said, yeah, well, we used emojis. <laughs> and she wasn't kidding. Right, right. Um, you know, that's very different from looking in someone's eyes and hearing someone else breathe in the same space as you and picking up on the nuances of body language. And so what do you think then about therapy apps or therapy that happens completely through the phone. I think there's like an ad for them on the subway right now that's like therapy on demand when you need it in five minute increments. Yeah. Well, even even with Skype where you can see someone in in certain situations, I'll do Skype sessions. But, you know, a colleague said that doing Skype is like doing therapy with a condom on. Um, Even though you can see the person, you don't 
feel that the same energy that you feel in the room with someone. And I think the same is true with, you know, more so with, with apps and, and, you know, all of the different ways that we use technology to conduct therapy sessions. I, I don't, I don't do that. I will do telephone. I will do Skype, but it's very different from being in the room with someone. Mm -hmm. The structure of this book is such that we are with you as you go through your own personal therapy. And then as you are a therapist to maybe four or five different clients who are dealing with a variety of issues. And so we get to see you both helping these people change their lives as your life is being changed simultaneously. And we, we see your humanity as well. And I'm curious about, um, you know, for those of us who have been in therapy, it's always tricky about how much of a human you want to see your therapist as to know that they themselves are, are fallible. Um, and, you know, when they choose to share personal information, it's always a little bit of like a, a dance of like, oh, this makes me feel close to you. But do I actually want to see you mm-hmm. as a full human? What advice do you have to people about like ha- what brain space to hold their therapist in? Yeah, I mean, the the therapy session is very much about the client. We will use self-disclosure very intentionally, meaning I had a a colleague who was seeing someone whose son had Tourette's and her son had Tourette's, and she disclosed that to the client. And it helped the client to feel less isolated in her situation and also helped the client to know that the therapist really understood what it was like day to day with the various challenges. But there are other situations where we wouldn't disclose something like that at all. So I think there's always this subjective litmus test. Will this benefit the client? And if not, um, then you definitely wouldn't be sharing that information. Of course, out in the world, I have a chapter in the book called Embarrassing Public Encounters because we do encounter people out in the world. And it's a little bit like when you're a first grader and you see your teacher in Best Buy with her family and she's in cutoff shorts and you're like, wait, you have a life and you wear other clothes. Right. We can't help but, uh, you know, be human in the world. And sometimes our clients will see that. You mentioned one anecdote about a child psychologist who's out in the world with his or her child who is having a meltdown and is like, you're the worst parent ever and is overseen by a client about how they didn't come back. Yeah. Well, th- those people actually came back. There was someone who who started sobbing in um, in Starbucks because her physician informed her that her pregnancy wasn't viable and she and her husband were try- had been trying to get pregnant. And uh, a one of her clients walked in and saw her sobbing in Starbucks and uh, made eye contact with her left and never came back. And I think there's that, you know, I think people want us to be human, but they don't necessarily want to see our humanity. And I think that it's important for people to know that our humanity is our greatest tool. Um, Without it, we would be useless to help people. And at the same time, it's important that we have boundaries around it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that everyone should be in therapy? I don't, actually. I don't think therapy is for everyone, but I do think that it really helps people to see what's not working in a way that it's very hard to see from the vantage point of your own friends or your own family. Um, It's really a rich experience to talk to another person, have them really see you for who you are, and still like you and accept you, and then to be able to see yourself that way and like yourself and accept yourself and learn how to relate better in the world. You mentioned therapy isn't for everyone. I know a lot of people who are resistant to it, but we all still have issues. It's the human condition. What would you recommend for somebody who potentially doesn't want to go into therapy, but does want to experience some of that type of 
self-reflection that you mentioned. Right. That's kind of why I wrote the book. Um, I felt like it would provide what therapy provides for people in a in a different way, but to help them kind of see, do you see yourself in these people that I'm writing about? Do you see any of the patterns that I'm writing about? A lot of people so far have said that they see themselves very much, even though they don't have anything on the surface in common with necessarily with these with these patients. So, you know, I think you can read books. I think you can, um, you know, there are different ways to learn about yourself, but I think that the most powerful way to learn about yourself is in relation with another person, another therapist. So in addition to writing this book and having your own practice, you write a column for The Atlantic called Dear Therapist. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about the challenges with writing with writing that column because it's such a different format than when you see someone one-to-one every week. And in your own therapy with, with your therapist, at one point he asked you, do you want counseling or do you want therapy? Yeah. And you sort of draw that distinction between advice yeah. and really doing the work. And it seems like this column is more counseling. So how do you how do you approach it when all that you have to go on from someone is a letter? Yeah, it's really different because in the therapy room, I can notice something and I won't necessarily bring it up that session if I think the person isn't ready for it. So I'll kind of tag that in my mind. And I know that I have another session where I can bring it up when they're, when I can plant the seeds in one session. Um, here, you just have this one opportunity. And the other thing is, when somebody tells me a story in therapy, I'm listening not just to the story, but to their flexibility with the story, because I know I'm hearing just one perspective. So I'm kind of listening for the music under the lyrics. Here's the content of the story, but I'm listening for what is the underlying struggle? What else might be going on? What might the other characters in the story be thinking, or what might be their perspective? In a letter, you have one perspective, and I know how limited that is. So um, in my column, I try to do a twist on an advice column. I don't just give, you know, don't talk to your mother-in-law advice. I very much want to tell people, here's how I think about this as a therapist. Here's how another person that you're talking about in your letter might view the situation. Here's another way to think about your problem so that you can make a good decision about how you want to move forward. I'm wondering about, you know, you mentioned that you go to a consultation group. So you're not just Mm -hmm. seeing your own clients. You also have sort of an understanding of other people's clients as well. I'm wondering if you see any mental health trends in the last few years that you find to be noteworthy. I would say anxiety and loneliness. Um, I think people are pulled in so many different directions and they have so many expectations for what they want um, in terms of, the career and the family and the marriage and their children, if they have them, their aging parents. You know, I just think that there are a lot of uh, a lot of stressors on people in terms of what they want to achieve and how difficult sometimes it is and the time that they have in which to do it. And I think the other thing is loneliness, because I think that no matter how many people somebody might be surrounded by, Um, people don't have the opportunity to connect face-to-face as much anymore. They don't have organic community when they walk out their door, neighborhoods and organizations where they normally would congregate. And so I think a lot of people are just carrying around phones and constantly having all this sort of input, but they're not really having meaningful connection with the people who matter in their lives. I want to ask you a little bit about antidepressants and other medication. You mentioned in your book a a figure that I found very shocking, which is that 26% 
of adults, or I'm not even sure if it's adults, it, people are on antidepressants. And they help so many people. And on the other hand, we see pharmaceutical companies marketing directly to consumers in a way mm -hmm. that is sort of unprecedented. And, you know, we see with the Sackler family right now, right. you know, marketing opioids to doctors and to, and to consumers themselves. Talk to me a little bit about your thoughts about antidepressants and about how the type of therapy you do can dovetail with medication. Right. So I'm a big proponent of medication in the right circumstances. I think what happens is it gets misused. Um, I work with psychiatrists all the time with We Share Patients. Uh, the gold standard for major depressive disorder is a combination of medication and talk therapy. But that's for a major depressive episode. And then there are other people who really need antidepressants as maintenance um, all the time. But I think what happens is a lot of people want a quick fix. You know, it's so much easier to take a pill than to do the hard work of looking inside yourself. And I, I think it's really important that people understand the limitations of what medication can and can't do. I think it's important if they are curious to go get a consultation, but also to really understand you know, what talk therapy does, what medication does, and whether the problem that you're trying to solve would be better suited to a different approach. And maybe I'll close out by asking you what going to your own therapist, the very lovely Wendell, what did it teach you about being a therapist yourself? He brought himself into the room, and I don't mean through self-disclosure. I mean, he brought his humanity, his personality into the room. You know, in graduate school, we're taught certain ways of being in the room with patients, and I think you kind of have to unlearn that a little bit and really come into your own and just be very real in the room with your patients. And he was, he was just utterly himself in a way that made me feel really safe and comfortable with him. The book is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, and it's out right now. You're currently on your book tour. Tell us a little bit about where people in New York can catch you. Um, well, in Brooklyn tonight, I will be at Books Are Magic with Katie Couric, and we're going to have a really great discussion, so I hope people will join us. And then on Saturday afternoon, I will be at Words Bookstore in Maplewood, New Jersey, with Allison Benedict, and I look forward to that conversation as well. Great. Lori, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. If the Real Abilities Film Festival were a federal program, Betsy DeVos would definitely be trying to cut its funding. The festival presents international and award-winning films by and about people with disabilities, and it's now in its 11th year. You can catch screenings across New York City, including one right here at Brick on April 8th, and we're happy it brings the festival's co-founder and New York director, Isaac Zablocki, into the studio. Welcome to Woman 2 BK. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about the inception of this film festival. Why did you decide to start it? So obviously I'm connected to this topic in many ways, and I think the most important thing is we have a film this year called Ian, a short film about a kid who's in a wheelchair. It's actually animated. Um, I think he has cerebral palsy, and he cannot access the um, playground where the other kids are playing. And that is the bottom line for me as far as, as, far as the importance of everyone being a part and everyone um, actually having access. And from the film perspective, I'm, I'm a film curator. And 
want people to be able to both access films, but also the stories that need to be told. Often the disability community stories are not brought to the mainstream, not even brought to their community and to our community. And so it was, it was, I think, I think using film as a tool for social change is really what I dedicate my life to. And, um, and there's no better use for it than to be highlighting a community that's um, kind of been kept in the shadows. I'm also curious about behind the camera. Are you working with, say, the filmmaking community to ensure that people with disabilities um, have reasonable accommodations uh, and are also able to be the authors of their own stories as filmmakers? So this is part of the problem, of course, that the disability community has been kept apart from the film world in general. People um, are not necessarily hiring um, uh, um, employees with disabilities. That's true beyond the film world. That's true, actually, everywhere. And and that's one of the things that we are trying to change. And within the film world itself, that's actually something that I have to admit, there's a, there's a positive note. In the last 11 years of the festival, I am seeing more inclusion of people with disabilities within the film industry. And I think uh, we are happy to be a part of this revolution that's going on. So I was very impressed with some of the films that uh, are playing this year and have played in previous years, films such as The Writer, uh, America is on the schedule this year, and these are both films that played top-tier festivals. I haven't seen America yet, but I hope to catch it at the festival. But I did see The Writer, and I would never have thought of it primarily as a film about a person with a disability. I think it's a very moving portraiture of a, a community, um, of a small community in the North Dakota, I believe. And I'm curious about how you go about curating your lineup. What, what types of films are you looking for and, and what type of diversity of experience are you looking to present? So I think that's exactly it. I mean, there, there's a lot there as far as our, our curation. So first of all, there's the diversity of disability that's important to us. There's the representation of disability that we look for actually representations that I'd say push the envelope a little bit. And um, my favorite kinds of films are the ones that are the drama is not the disability itself, but rather there's drama in the story and disability happens to be included in that and is a part of that and could play in within the drama actually usually can add a nice um, little addition to the drama. So, so we like telling the stories that are more of the day-to-day life. But but I think what you were saying before is really the the films that that reach everybody that reach the mainstream audience that um, anyone can relate to that you don't have to see it as a disability film I think those are the ones that we really try to look for and try to speak both to the public as broadly as possible because really these are human stories that anyone with a beating heart can relate to. Um, but also we want um, we want to tell those stories in the most normal way and not as something exceptional or something extremely special. We have we have actually trouble with the word special. We had to change we for a while we're not having special events because because we kind of want this to be the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um- I mentioned Betsy DeVos briefly in the intro, and I want to bring this back to something a little topical and ask you about her decision. And I believe it actually was the Trump administration pushing her to say that the Special Olympics would not be receiving funding. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, the disability community is one that's so often overlooked. And um, listen, it was not. It's also goes across the board. The Oscars, when they were diversifying. Um, the Academy Awards, they left out disability as well when they talked about all the minorities that they want to highlight and and include. They There's not enough, and that's uh, in a pretty progressive environment. 
um, there's definitely not enough awareness of how important this is, how um, how much these programs are a part of our society. This is 20% of America. This is the only minority group that absolutely anyone can join, and most of us or many of us will probably join um, just as we age and disability happens. This is an extremely complex um, society with, with many different facets that we need to consider as far as how disability goes. Disability does not just mean wheelchair. Disability does not just mean a person who is blind or deaf. There's such a spectrum and ultimately it's basically our community and we have to do better at including this community and it goes from the workplace to in schools to in our TV programming to our sports and making sure there's a, a playing field that needs to be leveled here and we are so far from it that we need to actually support any disability initiative to really bring disability closer to our community. So tell us a little bit about where people can attend some of these screenings with the Real Abilities Film Festival. So to make the festival even more accessible, we run in multiple locations. So we run everywhere from Long Island through Westchester, and um, we are in every borough of the, of the city, including here in Brooklyn. And we want to see more here in Brooklyn. That's something that's important. And the main location is the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, which is on the Upper West Side. And there we show absolutely every film. All the other locations choose from within our films. The festival also has actually now sprouted into a national and international program. So you could catch us in cities um, across the globe. And we have a screening here at Brick on April 8th. Uh, but if people want to find a screening near them, give us the website. Realabilities.org slash New York is where you could find all of our over 25 locations. Great. Isaac, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show your love is to review 112BK on iTunes. And please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. One One Two BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 